Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. How do you bottle PII and PHI so that First of all, you better be doing all the normal stuff for administrative, technical, physical safeguards. You better have encryption in rest, at rest and just everything under the sun, intrusion detection, annual certification, right? Do you pressure test yourself? Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engage. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, today we're joined by Brian Robertson, CEO of Visiquate, and we're, we're gonna have a great conversation today. I'm looking forward to this because one of the things is that we're gonna discuss having a team of data scientists out of the Ukraine and what that has looked like over the last couple of months. The, the Ukraine boasts one of the very educated, committed workforce, and they make uh, significant contributions to healthcare and technology across the U.S., despite facing incredible challenges right now with what's going on in that country. Brian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I've enjoyed getting to know you, and, and thanks for having me on. Do you have a, a significant team out of the Ukraine doing data science work? I do and have now for since literally 2001. Why, so why the Ukraine? It started rather, I guess, serendipitously. I was doing like a lot of folks in the dot com or dot bomb <laughs> era. We had an ASP at the time, and some of the engineering work was done in India. And the group that we were working with was a small boutique. They decided to go do other things and switch industries, so they became fully verticalized in their sector. And we were in a proof of concept phase at the time, and it was really it, it was as simple as this: a friend said, "Hey, I know a very dynamic engineer, grew up in Ukraine." He has a team of 10 people. We were in proof of concept phase. It was March of 2001. And it went from five people to 10 to 20. And by the end of 2001, we had over 50 and really just grew it from there. So I have, prior to the war, I'd, I'd done over a hundred trips according to my passport. Like, wow. So I got to see the country really grow 10 years after the wall. And really got to see how that what I call the magic of Ukraine. I've done some videos on it. I'm very passionate about it. Go quarterly, except for in current conditions. And it's been, as you and I talked about earlier, it's been an IT center and hub literally since then. And you've got Fortune 500, Oracle, Microsoft, Samsung, Nike, Adidas. I mean, some of the world's biggest brands do. And like London Stock Exchange, Allianz Capital, like some very, very sophisticated engineering has happened out of Ukraine. Grown leaps and bounds. 
I mean, is it the presence of those companies or is it the education system? What makes yeah. that number of data scientists that valuable to U.S. healthcare? Yeah, so this is, thanks for the question. What I learned over the years, when you had the Cold War ending and you have tons of universities, they've always had an engineering culture. They did mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, everything, the kind of engineering, radio electronics that you need in a Cold War dynamic. All the buildings are there, the brick and mortars there, the professors are there. Now what are they going to do? So if you read some of this story that like the Eastern European IT Association, they talk about big brands like Microsoft, at the time Netscape, certainly Oracle, things like Java, they started sending them Java books literally in the early 2000s. And it became a coding culture really, really rapidly and then just got more and more sophisticated. So Ukraine still annually cranks out 200,000 graduates a year. The third largest export is IT engineering services next to the normal things agriculture, grain, sunflower, oil, things like that. So it's it's been it's just been this very steady incremental growth. Lots of talent. I say the, the the average Ukrainian IT or data engineer or data scientist, they've got computer science degree, they've got a minor in applied mathematics. If you're an advanced analytics company, it's good to have statistics, quantitative methods. They know how to play chess really, really well. And a third of them know how to play an, a musical instrument. I play guitar. It's always fun to hang out. And so you get a lot of left brain, right brain. What, what I've always described as the magic of Ukraine, in addition to their just amazing work ethic, and you see that believe all the stories about the, the business battlefield, right? They just, they have a tremendous work ethic, tremendous pride in their work. But they really kind of like to balance the pure binary bits and bytes, technical stuff with understanding what are business people doing? What are people that are building software? What are they actually trying to accomplish? So I think the Ukrainian engineering mindset is attached to that big picture. Why are we doing what? Are we, why are we improving the revenue cycle in my world? They want to know that. Yeah. And that's why it's just a fit for us as we get a really balanced portfolio. That is an intangible quality, isn't it? I mean, really wanting to understand the why around it so that they can that they can really do a better job with yeah. the, the how we're going to do it. Yep. Yep. So rewind a little bit. The the I, I struggle here because a lot of times we're told to call it a conflict when the conflict hit. It looks like a war when I'm watching the pictures and seeing the deaths in the country. And I'm sure if you live in that country, it's a war. We can call it a conflict because we live in the safety of the United States. But how did you support your team? What did that look like in the in the first couple of weeks? And then how did you support your team through that challenge? Thank you again. I appreciate the question. And so, you know, continuity as a CIO, the drill, right? You've got to have your business continuity and DR on the ready. We had some foresight. Nobody really predicted how it started, but we immediately went to work. Job number one was safety. So there's a daily, we have, we're online virtualized system. So first it's safety. Then it was logistics. 
So check in every day. Are you safe? Yes, I'm safe. Where are you? <laughs> and where are you headed? So many folks, as you can imagine, we're moving from the hot war, the east to the west. So it's just supporting them while they're making those logistics, right? But again, just to give you the Ukrainian mindset and spirit, while they're on the bus moving, right, they're working. They're connecting to the web and they're wanting to get their their job done. So it took us like three, four weeks to get a, the ones that were able to move. They were mobile. There's there's always situation where we have some family members and dad doesn't want to leave or granddad doesn't want to leave. So that you got to work on that incrementally. So we tr we tried to support them as much as we could with really just the, the logistics. We focus on productivity, but we didn't have to really manage that. It's just built into how they're wired. After two weeks, we have been at 88% productivity and higher. And every day they check in. We have probably... 10 to 15 guys serving and we're supporting them and their families as they serve. The biggest thing that we try to do is we've raised close to $300,000 just to support our team in the Ukrainian military. The U.S. staff that works with them every day does payroll deductions because we know this is going to take some, some time. So it's you just, you do all you can to support them, love on them, and also support them financially, short-term, mid-term, long-term. There's a lot of very talented female engineers. So some of the younger female engineers that don't have as deep roots have moved. So we're also supporting the ones that have moved to Europe, mostly. But we have Rom Romania, Bulgaria, certainly Poland, Budapest. And, and obviously Europe's been so, so supportive. I always say like, yeah, take the media stuff with a grain of salt because the the, the things that don't get talked about every day in the media are all the, the stories of heroism of people also supporting Ukraine. It does your heart good when you just hear how much support. It can, it's never enough, but there's really proud of, of our team and what they've done. When's the last time you've been over? I, I, I assume you meet with the team via Zoom or whatever tools oh, you happen, yeah. happen to use. But you probably haven't been over there since since it started, since the conflict started. Not physically in the country. There are certain insurance policies that prohibit a guy like for me for even getting in there if I wanted. But we have been to, to Poland, to Krakow. We, we sort of set up a a little bit of an operating hub in Krakow. And by the way, the other, our engineering partners that, that have offices outside of Ukraine have also, it's just carte launch, rolled out the red carpet. So they have access to highly secure world-class offices. And so we made that an operating hub so that we could work on all of the finance and accounting and all the different things that as it endures, we'll have to just change the paperwork is what I say, the paperwork and the bank account and the tax structure. But again, you see people like Poland saying that they're not really going to worry about it until August of next year. But we stay very grounded in everything going on so we can continue 
to support them administratively and financially. You're not you're not the first CEO who I've talked to whose team's been affected. I mean, there's there's been a couple. Sure. I, I would think there's probably some best practices, some understanding of how to build out contingency plans and support your team, support sure. their safety. I mean, what, what would you share to set with somebody who has those kinds of offshore teams that might be looking at a similar, hopefully not, but a similar situation? Yeah. Well, my line is uh, think, think like Warren Buffett. Portfolio diversification <laughs> is your friend. While we have a concentration there, we recognize there's geopolitical risk. So we have contractors that have folks in from Portugal to all of Western Europe to now uh, South America, Colombia, Guadalajara. Talk about it in two ways. You should try to diversify your portfolio of talent, not just because of geopolitical risk, but also because specialized talent does show up in different market dynamics. And you can also line up that the follow the sun strategy. So lining up DevOps and people that are in the same time zone. So if you're solving uptime issues, makes a lot of sense. If you're looking for graphic designers that sometimes there's a specialty in certain markets like like Brazil and, and, and Argentina, where you can get UI, UX, maybe more than you can get DBAs in, in other cultures. So diversifying all of those things, right? Geopolitical risk, talent itself, rates. In our situation that, that we go for the top tier, there's some folks that come in D1 and D2, but the COVID made it so that if you're talented, you can work anywhere. So that while the wage inflation has gone up, it makes it easier that you don't have to have so much brick and mortar. So high end engineers live where they want to live and they command the rate that they want to command the higher they are, whether they're in Dallas, Texas or Budapest. We'll get back to our show in just a bit. I'd love to have you join us next Thursday for a webinar. Don't pay the ransom. Cyber threats are mounting everywhere, especially in healthcare. Leaders from Thomas Jefferson University Health, as well as St. Luke's University Health System and Rubric are going to join us to discuss solutions around protecting all healthcare data, even Epic in operations on Azure. This webinar will be on Thursday, August 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. You can register now at thisweekhealth.com or by clicking on the registration link in the description below. Now... Back to our show. You know, it's interesting because we just had, yeah, she was it? Oh, Malcolm Gladwell. Did you see Malcolm yeah. Gladwell's article where he, he bashed working from home and he said, people need to feel like they're a part of something. They need to come into an office to do that. What, just this morning. Yeah. What, what are just your Just this thoughts? morning. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm a culture strategy guy. I'm a culture warrior. So it was music to my ears. I mean, we, most of our people that, our closer regional office come in. Our, we have, you know, in the Santa Rosa office here, people come in every day. Office in Dallas, Harrisburg, same thing. We're a bit of a think tank too. There's like, in our office, there's always 20 whiteboards with smoke coming 
off somebody's fingers, it's hard to, even though there's tools as you know, that that do some of that stuff in a virtualized environment, there's nothing like being together and rubbing elbows and hanging out at the coffee machine. Um, so our culture really supports it. But we also, we've got moms and we've got flex. But I'd say folks close to an office are two-thirds coming in every day. And a third are, are just leveraging flex because you got kids and soccer practice, stuff like that. But I appreciated what he said, and it's kind of the way I'm wired. You know, it's interesting because you just made an argument. Well, first of all, one of the things he said is leaders aren't making the argument well. And, and you just made the argument pretty well. Jamie Dimon has spearheaded this, but he said Jamie Dimon has two really aspects of it. One is the backbone of the U.S. economy is small business. And if his people don't come into New York City and Chicago and all the places they live, those people who do dry cleaning, do restaurants and all that stuff, they they cease to exist. And so there's there's almost like a yeah, a, a community responsibility to bring those employees back. But then he started talking about this, this concept of we, we work better together when we're in the same room. There's like totally. a, there's like a, there's like a, a, we play off of each other. We can see each other. We can see facial expressions like, yeah, you just, you really disagree with me. Why do you disagree with me? And which you may not pick up. It's, it's, it's hard. Let's just say it's harder to pick up at this point, no matter how good the tools are. There's a brainstorming and in businesses like yours, where you're trying to solve complex problems, I would think that there's, there's value in that. Now yeah. I've talked, by the way, I talk out of both sides of my mouth on this one, because yeah. I also, I also understand it's hard to hire people. Some markets don't yeah. have people. The reason I bring it up with you is it sounds like your people are in the office in some places and in other places they they're scattered, but you still get, get the work done. Yeah, in our case, I would say our C-suite, our product people, there's certain groups in our culture that have to work together. But if you're in growth, if you're a biz dev or an account manager, half of your office is your airplane, right? So the people that are virtualized because they have to be light on their feet and they're, we talk about our own go bags. We all geek out on, is your go bag half packed or three quarters packed, right? But the people that are more the kind of lab whiteboard, we're building product or we're working on strategy, you're right. And the sentiment that Malcolm touched on is that we touched on it with Ukraine too. They want to be part of the bigger picture, but everybody wants to know why you're doing what you're doing. And we're mm -hmm. big on our why. We do analytics literally to get rid of the waste and drive yield improvement for the revenue cycle. So that money goes back to clinical care, right? That motivates us that we're we're contributing to more. We do things where the ROI can pay for a PET scanner or it can pay for 10,000 IV infusion pumps. And that's how we look at return on analytics. So that higher calling, it, I think you have to be in a community office environment feeding off each other there's like a mastermind synergy. I like how you brought up the point too about new people sometimes join our culture. And we always say like, when we're together, it's a lot of hugs. There's a love fest, but we'll throw spitballs at each other. Like you fight for your argument with conviction. 
and you embrace intellectual debate and sometimes throwing a piece of paper and saying, you're not listening. Right. Right. And then you hug it out at the end because you're trying to get the same things. How do you do that on a Zoom call? It's pretty hard. There's going to be a new feature, throw a paper and then it like launches somehow. Let it me ask you this. It does like so, the Batman thing. Yeah. <laughs> so how? So this is not your first foray into analytics. So why did you choose healthcare analytics and why do you keep coming back to healthcare analytics? It's not because my stepdad was a CPA. My mom was a nurse. Some people go, oh, like, then you give birth to a revenue cycle guy. <laughs> I was going to go into like, like a lot Wall Street and stuff like that. I, I got my, my uh, degree in corporate finance. I just fell into the revenue cycle in an early job. And it's like the Godfather three, once they suck you in, I haven't been able to get out. So I, I joke, I've been helping those and chase cash for 30 years now. In my early career, I had a consulting boutique for the revenue cycle that we kept doing our work around data. So instead of just doing process redesign and stuff like that, it was like we wanted to be data-driven, right, it, when it wasn't even in vogue. And that just kept materializing. Instead of templates and PowerPoints, it turned into a product. And I built my first version in the good old Microsoft Access database with a VBA front end. And then that morphed into, well, we need something more scalable like SQL Server and We'll put it on the Microsoft stack and pretty soon you have a BI stack and you just keep after it. And it's just, look, it's a hard slog as you in your job. You know how hard it is to take raw data, put it into refined insights and then get people to move the needle. And so we, we have the full spectrum, but when you do move the needle and the ROI is there and you, and you, you make your clients the heroes, of course, but. It, that's what gives you the juice. It, it's like a personal trainer that gets somebody fit. And I often say that we're we're in the business fitness. So we're trying to help organizations thrive by really being good at data. And we're advanced analytics is different as you know, the BI. And so we're fanatical about pushing people up the business analytics maturity curve. And now intelligent process automation. It's not about building bots. It's about where does the data tell you to build automation? And with 30% of the back office of a revenue cycle making more money, the joke is that Arby's and Walmart have a better salary and vacation package than some business. We're addressing that, that need of embracing automation just to fill the gap now. It's no longer, oh, AI and machine learning sound cool. Five years ago, you're, you're pushing the power of that. Now you're just saying, we got to replace the labor gaps that exist. Yeah. So let me try to think. I'd want to go in one of two directions. We just had, we had a series of bad financial reports. I mean, just this morning, I think was the Kaiser $1.3 billion loss. I wouldn't mention it because that happens from time to time. There's different markets and whatever, but this seems to be universal. I mean, we've seen it yeah. from the East Coast to the West Coast. Maybe not in Florida and Arizona, but that's just population 
mix, I think. When you look at that, what do you think is going on in healthcare right now that's causing that challenge? Just to make sure I'm clear, you're talking about the like how there's a big focus on cash again, cash is king. Well, no, I, I just the results, the financial results. I mean, from yeah. common, common spirit to gotcha. to Kaiser to, I mean, it, it almost doesn't matter. I don't remember Mayo's, but Mayo's usually just above the line or fairly uh, profitable just because they're such a specialty and Cedars and some of those others fall into that category. But but the integrated delivery networks seem to be struggling right now. What do you think that struggles due to? Well, it, it's one of these things where the macroeconomic trends that we see through our clients and through the data, and we're pretty national presence. It's always interesting because in any environment, the macro trends are, there's three or four that we all share. When you get into the micro, the healthcare tends to be very local. So capitated environments or shared risk or more ACO, more pay for performance versus like now we're more fee for service. You go to states like Massachusetts and Maryland, and it's just very, very different from a reimbursement standpoint. So we're always wearing the micro. On the macro side, I guess I have in my staff, we have a front row seat to the labor shortages that we talked about. So what we're seeing in the data is inability to make payments. Inflation is having an impact. So balance after insurance, even for middle-class Americans, what bill did they pay first other than mortgage and auto and rent? And we all know where, and then you get into the real fine micro-segmentation. If a hospital, if the bill hits the patient's desk and it's $37 more than intellectually they understand or can afford, or then it goes into the bottom of the pile. Right. So we see patient pay exposure, certainly AR erosion. So accounts just keep going to the right. Because if you have 30%, in some cases, FTEs not calling or portal and calls getting claims through the, the system, with a 40% defect rate of, I mean, people share clean claim statistics and I'm always like, man, we get a lot of data. We don't see that. We still see 40% of the inventory in a, in some bill hole, defect, denial, whether it's medical necessity or you're missing box 22. So that shifting to the right is starting to hit the books in cash and bad debt. But I, I sense it's a little bit of perfect storm. It's like I often hear volume is back up, but are the right patients? What's the case mix index? Right. right. Are they the are they the right patients? In some cases, some people are doing okay. In other cases, like we've never been more full, but I don't have the right mix. Right. And there are there are clearly examples in certain markets where surgery is like if you're gonna have a bunion removed, not to be gross, but some people just put that off and say, I I'm not going into a hospital until COVID's really, really, right? There's just a, some people aren't ready for it. So yeah, we're it, seeing- It really is the perfect storm, isn't it? I mean, we had the pandemic and so people deferred and now we have inflation. So people are deferring. It's like, my gosh, it's been three years of deferring. At some, well, in telemedicine, 
I don't know if what you see in, in your universe, but you can get really excited about the advancement in telemedicine until you look at the reimbursement. And not all of those issues have been worked out yet. So it's a wonderful thing for a lot of people. But I always say hospitals so often get a bad rap. There's always the story of the $10 aspirin. It's, well, nobody ever collects $10 on aspirin, right? We know that. Yeah. But all of those stories running a hospital is so, or a health system or anything is so complicated. There's so much. If you, you get, here's another one that more and more, if, if you're not, if, if you're a high cost drug that you just spent a hundred thousand for one vial and there's five treatments of a cancer patient, if you don't build that with perfection, you're underwater per vial. So it's just all of these things, not to mention, I'll also say the cost of certain large-scale implementations where you need to do a bond just to get it done. I think all this fragmentation of macroeconomic stuff is showing. Now, it's is it delaying our business a little bit because deals have to shift a little bit? Some deals accelerate, some deals shift. But the fact that cash is king, what I'm encouraged by, because it's always cash is king. In these kind of markets, people like to sharpen the knives in the drawer. I say five nickels is a quarter, four quarters is a dollar. People are down to, in the law of large numbers, if you can drive a basis points improvement in something, it's real money. If you sell advanced analytics, that's good for us. But it's still kind of complex because the sale is complex and things like that. Um, it's interesting when I was CIO, people would say to me, why don't you guys embrace telehealth more? I mean, the technology's there. It's all ready to go. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely it is. We just don't get paid for it. So name another business yeah. where the innovation does not go to your bottom line that people are like lining up to do it. And I'll, I'll be the first to start pushing telehealth as, as hard as you want me to push it. Let me absolutely let me ask you this because th this is um, and, and this is outside the realm of normal questions, but we're seeing some breaches, some cybersecurity issues happening across the BAA world, the business associate world. How do you ensure that you don't become one of those stories for your clients? Yeah, another great question. And it's interesting how I would have answered that question five years ago, four years ago, three years ago, two years ago today. It's only different because, as we all know, the intensity of, of that in, in a global scale in all industries. So our big thing is to push no PHI. I'm in a big no PHI mood because... The technology does exist that you can encrypt everything, kind of like the way blockchain works, if I just use that as a metaphor. Right. Can The idea of highly distributed, highly encrypted data, it's here. It boils down to the cost equation. And if, it, if the encryption's this big, it's probably Department of Defense kind of stuff. Healthcare is getting to the point where it's not much different. 
so like it i think you just have a department of defense mindset i mean we i tell my staff and i i said pretend like you're in a jason Bourne movie like that's what the stakes are you yeah. have to safeguard and we're a very need to know it's the the reality is do you need to know if you're doing user acceptance testing and you're testing an eligibility transaction from point A to point B? Yeah. In our world where we're sitting on top and we're lighting everything up as opposed to transaction processing, it's really how do you bottle PII and PHI so that First of all, you you better be doing all the normal stuff for administrative, technical, physical safeguards. You better have encryption in rest, at rest and just everything under the sun. It, intrusion detection, annual certification, right? Do you pressure test yourself? You got to do all of that. Better have a CISO if you're... Even small companies, you, you hear the VC community, what's the third hire? What's the hire after the CFO, like the CISO, right? Yeah. So I think that it's, and then the administrative side, physical and technical safeguards, I think it's everybody's job to know what they are and make sure that they're doing, turn the volume up further than you think. And it is expensive. Make sure you have proper cybersecurity insurance. It's really the constant training. We have a very high bar for hiring. So it, the higher the bar for hiring, the more risk mitigation there is of bad actors. Yeah. And, and then, I, you know, I feel for people that are, I feel for people that have thousands of employees and it's, it gets hard to do that. Yeah. We had you know, 20,000 employees that ranged from, you know, oncologist who's been trained for many, many, many years, all the way down to people who never went to, to, to college and they all present almost an equal threat because the credentials, loss of credentials is the first step to, to getting in. Although I will say this, that anytime we did tests, the executives failed at a, at a decent clip, 20% clicking on phishing attacks and that kind of stuff. It's, it's, they're sophisticated and it's, uh, it's getting harder and harder to, to know what's right and what's, what's wrong. It's uh, really interesting. Well, to your point, I always say that people will still bring up the Nigerian prince as a use case. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 no. That, that was it. That was so far long ago. I can't, it's, they will emulate your bank and look up your kids on social media. That's where we're at. So you don't click on anything. Right. Yeah. And we talked to some professionals about this and they said, look, they, they have your social media. They're looking at all that social media stuff. And so when you get back from vacation, the email you get is, hey, it's great to see that you're back from vacation. And they're spoofing an email from within the organization. Hey, great to see you've gotten back. And all of a sudden you're looking at this going, yeah, this is from internal. It's somebody who knows I was on vacation. Somebody who knows some, you know, some details about our department and things. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there going, well, this is somebody I trust. And yeah, you don't click on anything. I think it's the, it's, it's how this story ends. Well, uh, and I even tell people that, let's say that you're at a family reunion and this topic comes up and they're on Facebook and stuff. And it's like, do you have two facts? Talk to your aunt Susan or something. 
what's two-factor authentication? Like, you need to know that. Yeah. So it's now, I think the education has to be pushed to everybody down and outward. Yeah, more more and more. It's a a full-time, yeah, it's a full-time job. But I also say just no PHIs is the way to go, (laughs) right? It is. People talk about encryption in motion and at rest. And my thing was, you know what, let's let's, uh, keep it from moving around so much. Because so many requests came in. Oh, they want they want some of the data over there. I'm like, you realize once it leaves here, I can't do anything. So I'd rather not have it leave here. Yeah. And then our controls still. We started talking about the Ukraine, your team in Ukraine, and your team supporting them. Is there anything that our listeners can do to support people in Ukraine? Any links? Any direction? Oh yeah, use? thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. So. Our website, visitquake.com, and just the word Ukraine, there are links there to several initiatives, including ones that our team supports. There's Our clients have been very, very generous, and our partners, and we have folks that created a special coffee roast. You can order coffee and K-cups even, and... I always encourage people to donate to the Ukrainian military and we have a link to that. That's a very legit direct source and they just need some of the, those, the, some of those basic things, sleeping bags, blankets, more better gear, right? Cause that everybody can, can make such a difference with those items just as much as, our government and other governments send sending more high power things. It's those little things that also make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Brian, I want to thank you for the work you're doing with your team. I want to thank you for the work you're doing for healthcare. And I, I, I want to thank you for the conversation. It's always, always great to, uh, to catch up and learn more about uh, what's going on in the industry. And I appreciate your work. Yeah. Likewise, Bill. I enjoy getting to know you and really appreciate the time. Let's do it again. Absolutely. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Prescaney, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. 